So what makes you smile? What makes you smile? How about the digital DOT signs on the interstate? Those, those ever make you smile? The Ohio Department of Transportation a few months ago started a new campaign with their digital signs out on the road. They, they added a little bit of humor to the signs in this campaign. Here are a few of the signs that were posted around the roadways there. Some of them have a little holiday theme to it. Santa sees you when you're speeding. Drive excellent. Some bunny needs you. Turkey says, buckle, buckle. Love these last two. Camp in Ohio State Parks, not the left lane. This one's great. Visiting in-laws, slow down. Get there late. There were no accidents reported from people reading the funny signs, which is good for the DOT there. They didn't cause any additional accidents. Colonel Paul Pride was the superintendent of the Ohio State Highway Patrol back in March when the campaign was launched. And he said this, if we can use just a pinch of humor from time to time to get somebody's attention and help change behavior, absolutely, it works. Just a pinch of humor to increase safety. That, that seems like it's a, it's a good thing, a good pinch. But what if it's not safety we're talking about? What if we're, what we're dealing with is, is anger or apathy or fear or frustration or discouragement or depression? Will a, a pinch of humor help things like that? Usually. I mean, humor usually helps just about anything. But humor will only help things like that for a moment. Our hearts and our souls and our minds, we, we need something deeper than just a pinch of humor. We, we need a pinch of something else. Something that has an influence, an impact. Something that gets on the inside of your emotions of your thoughts, of your attitude, your demeanor. It gets inside your relationships, your mental well-being, your spiritual well-being, and yes, it could even change your driving habits. What is it that would have that kind of control, that kind of power, that kind of influence over your soul, over your mind, over your heart? Whatever it is, it sounds like something that's, that's worth a pinch of, right? So what are we talking about? Well, in order to get there, we, we're going to have to look at some warning signs. And the Apostle Paul is going to help us see those warning signs, and then he's going to help us see what this powerful influence can be over our souls. Listen to Paul's letter to his friends at Philippi. Philippians chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. Finally, brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Paul says what we need a pinch of is, is joy. We need a pinch of joy. He says that, that we need to rejoice in the Lord. We need to have joy in the Lord. What does it mean to have joy? Well, sometimes we think that happiness and joy are the same thing, that if we're, if we're happy, we also have joy, but, but actually they're, they're different. You see, the word happy comes from a word that means luck or chance. 
Think of the word happenstance. And so by definition, to be happy involves something maybe working out. So as, as Christians, when we look at the Bible, we don't really see the concept of, of luck and chance as something that's supposed to drive how we think about things. So as, as Christians, we would see happy as something that's based on chance. So if something works out the way that we wanted it to work out or the way that we thought we, it was going to work out, we might feel happy about it. But if something doesn't work out like we thought it would or, or the way we were wanting it to, we might not be happy. Well, that kind of happiness is, is not what joy is. Joy is completely different. James Boyce gives a real helpful definition, I think. It goes like this. Joy is supernatural delight in God and God's goodness. It is an inner quality of delight in God. Joy is a delight, an inner delight in God and God's goodness. So how do you know if somebody has this inner quality of delight in God? How do you know if someone has joy in the Lord? The story's told about a little girl who was out in the country one day, and, and she saw a mule. She was just a little girl, and she didn't know what it was. So she walked over to the mule, and, and she just stared at it and stared at it. And after a minute, she said, you know, I don't know what you are, but I think you're a Christian because you look just like my grandfather. <laughs> Listen, none of us are perfect, and we're not always going to have a, a joyful look on our face. But, but what's usually seen in us? What's the, what's the normal habit of our lives? Do we have joy in the Lord consistently? This is what Jesus said, John 15, 11. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full, full joy. You see, the, the Scripture says that, that to have joy in Jesus is to have full joy. So if you're going to have joy, it means that you're rejoicing. And Jesus says that the ultimate joy, the ultimate rejoicing is found in him. See, Paul didn't tell his friends, hey, you know what? I'm praying that you'll be happy. Why? Well, because happy is, is circumstantial. He says, I'm praying that you will have joy, joy in Christ, because Jesus is not a circumstance. Jesus is the divine Savior of the world. Jesus is the Redeemer and Rescuer of sinners. He is a constant source of joy. You may not have a joyful smile on your face all the time, but you can have a heart that is genuinely full of joy in Jesus. And if your heart is full of joy in Jesus, it will be seen in your life in the hardest of fears and the hardest of tears. It may not be a smile on your face, but a genuine smile over your salvation exists in all moments of life. You can have joy all the time. I love how Ray Stedman talks about the power of what it means to rejoice in the Lord when times are hard. He says this, if we genuinely believe that God tells us that we have within us one who is completely competent to meet every situation through us, then there is never any strain. I'll just say there's never any real strain. There's, there's strain, right? 
He goes on. For whatever comes, we know he is adequate to meet it in and through us. We rest on the fact, and that is the quiet confidence that marks the Christian. There's nothing new about this experience. It is the experience of the believer in any age, any age. No matter what you're going through today, someone has gone through something identical or similar. And a Christian has gone through something similar or identical. He says, it's the experience of the believer in any age. When we learn this secret, we discover that there are mysterious bridges flung over every abyss to which we come. That's great language. I mean, how many of us have needed a mysterious bridge of grace this past week? How many of us are, are hoping that we will have a mysterious bridge of grace this coming week? See, the very nature of who God is, it reminds us that we can have joy in Him because He is faithful and He is true. And all of us can share about at least one mysterious bridge that's happened in our life. Paul says we should rejoice in the Lord, but why? What should motivate us to have this this inner trust, this inner joy, this inner confidence in God? This is what Paul wrote the folks at Rome. Romans chapter 8, I'm reading from the Amplified Version. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. Paul goes on. For I am convinced and continue to be convinced beyond any doubt that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present and threatening, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the unlimited love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, dear Christian, here is why we can have this inner trust, this inner confidence in who God is. We cannot be separated from his love. We cannot be separated from his eternal protection. We cannot be separated from him. So if we cannot be separated from him, then we have every reason to be confident in him, every reason to trust in him. And I hope that that this is not just kind of like Sunday morning language to you. I, I hope that even the simplicity of that truth, that you cannot be separated from the love of God, that just that truth, maybe that truth is your mysterious bridge right now. That the reality that that in Christ you cannot be separated from God's love would be the bridge over whatever abyss is in your heart and mind this morning. Trey Newbill said this, we don't trust God simply because someone tells us to. We trust God because he is God. He is holy and awesome and righteous in every way. We can trust God because we don't serve a God who is only sovereign and wise. He is also infinitely loving. And even though your present circumstances may not feel loving, as surely as you are in Christ, you are in his love. Christian, right now, you are in the love of Christ. You cannot be separated from the love of Christ. And because of that love, you have reason to rejoice right now. Regardless of the circumstance, because you cannot be separated from Jesus, you have reason to rejoice. 
And why should you do that? Why should you rejoice in the Lord today? Why should you rejoice in the Lord tomorrow morning? Why should you rejoice in the Lord Wednesday afternoon or Friday night? Why should you rejoice in the Lord? What's your motivation? Well, Paul's going to help us in that direction. Look what he says next in verse 1. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. If Paul was in charge of the DOT signs, they would all say the exact same thing. Rejoice in the Lord. Every sign everywhere would just say, rejoice in the Lord. This is Paul's message. And he says if we will rejoice in the Lord, it will keep us safe. That's good motivation, but, but safe from what? Well, he tells us. Look at verse 2. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. Rejoicing in the Lord will keep you safe from dogs. Now, don't take that too far, okay? You go up in somebody's yard this week and you see a big sign that says, beware of dog. Don't open the gate and start going, rejoice, rejoice, rejoice in the Lord, and think that you won't get bit, okay? That, that's not what this is talking about. This is a whole other kind of dog that Paul is referring to. You see, there were some folks in and around the church, and, and they were becoming dangerous to the church. They were becoming dangerous because they were having a negative spiritual effect on the people in the church. So Paul's saying, look, you need to have your spiritual antenna up. And he describes these people in three different ways. And Pastor Paul Apple breaks it down this way. He says their character is that of dogs, their conduct is that of evil workers, and their creed is that of false circumcision. So we're going we're gonna to look at these, their character, their conduct, and their creed. And we're going to look at it just as, as Paul words it. And first we'll start with their character. Paul says, beware of the dogs. Now, a dog in Paul's day, again, is not, you know, cute little cocker spaniel or a, you know, snazzy Jack Russell Terrier. You know, that's not what we're talking about. The dogs in Paul's day, they were scavengers. They were mongrels. They were vicious. They were nasty. They would roam in packs, and, and they, would, they would devour anything. They would hang out at the garbage heaps looking for food. They were, they were nasty, dangerous, vicious beasts. And that's how Paul describes people that were in and around the church. <laughs> well, Paul, tell us how you really feel. He uses the word dogs to describe them. These, these mangy, terrible animals that everybody knew, they were mangy and terrible. And Paul says, be careful of those dogs around the church. And many of these dogs were, were part of a group known as the Judaizers. And just like a, a mangy mutt, what they did was they were always nipping at Paul's heels. Paul would go into an area, he'd, he'd preach the gospel, he'd, he'd plant a church, and then he'd move on to the next area. And after he left, in came the dogs. And, and they would come in, and, and they'd start hanging around the people in the church, and they'd get involved in the church, and, and they'd start saying, hey, you know what? Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. But you also need some of these religious traditions and rules and customs from us if you really want to be a Christian. It'd be nice if we could say that the dogs are no longer around the church of the world today, but, but they are. Now, the Judaizers, what they did was they had these Jewish customs and these, these Jewish traditions, and they said, you have to do these things if you're going to be saved. 
Now today, it could be a, a whole bunch of different kind of stuff out there. Uh, the dogs in, in many churches have, a, have whole other agendas. John MacArthur kind of modernized the thought process like this. He says this, anybody who comes along in this time and day and says you have to be baptized in water to be saved is a dangerous dog. Anybody who comes along in this day and says in order to be saved, you've got to go through some certain kind of ceremony, you've got to say some certain kinds of prayers, you've got to go through some kind of a ritual, is a dog. Anyone who comes along to you and says, it's fine if you believe in Jesus, but if you don't acquiesce to a certain code of ethics and do your best to live by that code of ethics and perform these deeds, which will please God, you will never be saved. Someone who says that, he says, is a dog. Now, someone might be thinking, wait a minute, hang on now. Now, the church I grew up in said you, you had to be sprinkled. But this church says you, you got to go down under the water. Well, the church that, that I grew up in, all you had to do was shake the pastor's hand. And, and the church that my wife grew up in, well, they, they had to go through these confirmation classes. And, and this church has this next steps thing. Well, well, the church I grew up in, well, they only use the NIV, but then my wife's church, well, well, they use the King James Version. And man, Holland Avenue, they use any version that's out there. Boy, they're always referencing some different Bible. The church I grew up in, everybody, everybody wore flip-flops on Sundays, but the church my parents grew up in, everybody wore suits and ties. And, you know, the church that, that I grew up in, they, they took people door-to-door every Saturday morning. But then my wife's church, well, they did relationship evangelism. Or maybe somebody says, you know, our families, we've been, we've been visiting churches for the last year, and, and every single church we go to, they, they seem to do things different. Every one of them. And all of those things may be true. But none of those things have anything to do with salvation. All of those things are what we might call church polity. It means that, that individual churches and various denominations, they have systems that they've created for, for how the church works on a day-to-day basis and a week-to-week basis. And generally speaking, those systems are based on biblical truth and biblical doctrine, and, and hopefully they are wisely, practically applied in the life of the church. I have family members who are Methodist and Presbyterian. I have friends who are Methodist and Presbyterian and, and Anglican and non-denominational and a lot of other things. We're friends because we agree on the gospel. We don't go to church together because we have different views of polity, and that's okay. It's all right. You know, somebody may come to our church and, and go through our, our Next Steps ministry, and they may decide not to join the church because they can't perfectly agree with all of our church polity, and that's okay. It's all right. But when our church begins to say that you have to perfectly agree with all of our church polity in order to be saved, then we become dogs. And if any church begins to say the only way you can be saved is if you obey our rules and our rituals, and if you don't do these things, you can't be saved, Paul would say those people are dogs. That's why he says, beware. Beware. Why? Because salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, period, exclamation point. Salvation is in and through Christ alone. 
If anything's added to that, Paul says it is no longer divine. It is now canine. There were some people like that hanging around the church in Philippi. Paul said, look, you need to look out for these folks because what they're doing is they're, they're saying Jesus is great. They're affirming Jesus, but then they're, they're saying Jesus plus something is really how a person gets saved. But listen, if the message is not Christ and Christ alone, then the messenger, according to Paul, is a dog, a scavenger, and we need to beware. That's the character of someone who adds something else to Jesus. And what does their character do to their conduct? Well, Paul tells us, look at the next part of verse 2, beware of the evil workers. Now, they weren't evil people, they were, they were evil workers. They believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but, but they basically believed that the only people that he was a savior to were the ones that followed their customs and their traditions and obeyed their rules. Now, Jesus actually used even stronger language for folks like this than Paul did. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. What Jesus meant was you're going to save people to your group, but you're not going with the gospel. You're actually not helping that person find salvation. You're drawing them away. The dark cloud that is hanging over folks like this is, is a word that we use. It's, it's called legalism. Legalism is when something that can be good and noble is, is taken and it's, and it's used in a way that says, well, you have to have this too. Salvation is not enough. And that's when something that's good and noble can become evil. Now, let me just say this real quick. Some people say that obeying what the Bible says is legalism. That's not true. From time to time, I hear people say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it, it, it's usually, truthfully, in, in my experience, it's usually been in a church conference or a church business meeting, you know, where somebody has some idea and somebody else says, we well, you know the Bible says, <laughs> don't be bringing the Bible up here in this conference. Come on, it's church business. You know, I've heard that too. <laughs> And, and let me just tell you just a, a fantastic story that I heard uh, just, just last night or yesterday from my mom. Never heard it before. But when she was growing up in her little home church out in the country, there was a family that moved into the community that was from, from another country. And they looked different. <laughs> and they talked a little different. And they started coming to the church. And there was one member of the church that, that didn't want them there and and was pretty adamant about it. But I loved how my mom put it. She goes, you know, looking back these years now, I really make the connection of, of how proud I was of our deacons and our little country church because they told that man, you know, you're not acting very Christian about this and, and you need to stop. That was probably in the late 40s, early 50s maybe. See, there's a, a picture of this that, that I think we miss sometimes because it's not that it's not good and nice people. It's people that say, well, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but then I got this rule. <laughs> and I can't separate the rule from Jesus. And, and that's when legalism kicks in. That's when that dark cloud hangs over. 
When you take good and noble traditions and you begin to demand that other people honor your traditions in order to be saved, that's when something that's good turns into something that's evil. And, and please don't get lost on the word traditions, okay? Some of the coolest, hippest, most bougie pastors in the United States that have these great big cool churches, there is a sense that some of them demand that you do church with their new tradition. And if you don't use their new tradition, then you're just some old fuddy-duddy that doesn't care about people getting saved. Paul would say thinking like that is canine, not divine. Or on the flip side, there, there's, you know, a senior adult, an older pastor somewhere in the United States today that, that believes if the church doesn't follow the traditions handed down from Jesus when he was still walking on the earth in 1954, that if we don't follow those traditions, then that means we're just some young whippersnapper and we don't care about people getting saved the right way. Paul would say thinking like that is canine, not divine. See, there is traditional legalism and there is contemporary legalism. And both are dangerous because neither one is bad in and of itself. What makes it bad is when you say, you must do this. That's when it gets dangerous. When we begin to put up our traditions ahead of the gospel, when we begin to add to Jesus. It doesn't mean any of the traditions are wrong. It just means we need to be careful about how we use them. Chuck Swindoll said this about the danger of evil workers around the gospel. Their message is full of exhortations to do more to work harder, to witness longer, to pray with greater intensity, because enough is never enough. Such folks are evil workers who will take away what little bit of joy you may be able to muster. We've all seen folks like this. He goes on. I would also add that when you never know how much is enough to satisfy God, you are left in a continual state of shame and obligation, and your mind never rests. That'll never be the gospel preached from this pulpit as long as I'm the pastor. He goes on. The message of the legalist always finds you lacking. It never brings relief. We need to beware of such messengers. They are, according to the scriptures, evil workers. You see the picture of what Swindoll is saying is this. The reason we need to beware of, of the evil workers is because they will actually take away the one thing that your heart and your soul and your mind need the most, and that is joy in the Lord. They'll take it away because they'll say, join the Lord is not enough. You need to do more. You need to do more. You need to do more. And that just leaves you paralyzed spiritually. Ray Stebbins said, if you want to sum up Christianity in four words, you could sum it up like this, rejoice in the Lord. There's, there's Christianity, rejoice in the Lord. Legalism drives you away from the inner delight of rejoicing in the Lord. And that's exactly what the dogs were doing, driving people away from joining the Lord. That's what they were doing with their character and in their conduct, they were just doing these evil works. And that, that character and that conduct was all being fed by their creed. So what was their creed? This one that Paul says in the last part of verse 2. Beware of the false circumcision. Their creed was circumcision, but, but Paul says their creed was false. 
Now, circumcision was something that was established by God with Abraham back in Genesis 17. It is a radical surgical removal as a symbol to to show God's people the eternal danger of sin and at the same time to remind them of the eternal rescue of God. It wasn't just a religious ceremony. It wasn't just an outward religious ceremony. It was an outward picture that was supposed to help them see the importance of an inner reality. And what is that inner reality? Well, the inner reality is your need, my need, to have a heart that is circumcised. A doctor cannot spiritually circumcise your heart. That kind of surgery can only be done by God through Jesus Christ. And and what God does is he does a circumcision on the heart at the moment that a person comes to faith in Christ. At the moment of salvation, God does this work. He he cuts out, so to speak, the old heart and and puts in a new heart. He he cuts away that that spiritual nature that that demanded so much from us. And he gives us a, a new heart. And in giving us a new heart, what he does is he sets us free. And and what these dogs, what these evil workers were doing is they came into the church and they said, Jesus is great. He is the Messiah. And, And you know what? Spiritual circumcision, sure, that's fantastic. But if you really want to be saved, then you need physical circumcision too. Again, it's it's Jesus plus something else if you want your salvation to be real. And Paul says, nope, that's a lie. That's false. That's not true. Their creed was a lie. Their creed was not true. And in a sad, strange way, you know what they were doing? They were cutting people off from the freedom of the gospel. Because that's what legalism will do. It will will cut you away from freedom, and it will cut you away from joy. Have you ever clapped or cheered at the wrong time? That's kind of like what it means to, to listen to the dogs. It's kind of what it means to, to follow after the evil workers, to, to hear their story. And again, you know, the way Paul describes folks like this throughout the New Testament and, and even Jesus and, and others, they're usually nice people, you know. You would never think they were a dog or an evil worker. But it's because Jesus is not the message. There's, there's something else that's always added to it. Cheering at the wrong time is, is kind of what it means to embrace legalism. I heard somebody put it this way, and I kind of expanded it a little bit. It's kind of like you're at a football game. And you're there at the game, and, and all of a sudden, your, your team, your star running back, man, he just tears away for a 40-yard scamper. And he crosses the goal line, and man, you just jump up. You are ecstatic. You are screaming, cheering your head off. And then you, you realize something. And that is that none of the other fans of your team are standing up cheering. It's just you. So here's what happened. Most of the game, you've been sitting there with your phone. You were checking scores from, from other teams in the conferences. You were crushing candy. You were watching puppy videos on Facebook. You know, you were halfway into the game. And somewhere in the midst of that moment, you got a little turned around, and you didn't realize that your star running back got turned around, and he actually ran the wrong way and ran into the wrong end zone. So you're standing up cheering, but it's foolish because it's wrong. 
See, that's why Paul says, beware. If we don't watch it, we'll stand up and cheer and won't even realize how foolish we are being to promote something that says Jesus plus something else. It's foolish and it is dangerous. So we need to beware. But, but on the positive side, what, what should we do? You know, Because it's not just warning. You know, the Bible gives us warning and this is, all right, now do this. So, so what's to do this? George Mueller was an evangelist. He managed an orphanage back in the 1800s. In the course of his life, he cared for more than 10,000 orphans. So how do you raise 10,000 kids? Yeah. Well, you have to have some priorities. And Mueller had one main priority. This is how he said it. I saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. I I just, I want to repeat that. I saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. Friend, for the safety of your soul, for the mercy of your mind, for the hope of your heart, make it your primary business to make your soul happy in the Lord. Make it your greatest ambition to rejoice in the Lord. Christians, let us rejoice in the Lord. Let us rejoice in the Lord. Let us rejoice in the Lord.